So we are in the Gospel of John. We are picking up where Pastor Stephen left off last week. If you haven't noticed, COVID is still a thing. And it's been a thing since 2020. Um, And for those of you who have had it in your home, uh, if you're not patient zero, uh, with every little tickle in your throat or sniffle of your nose, you're stuck wondering if it might be COVID. At least this was our experience two weeks ago. If I was not patient zero, but with every little tickle and sniffle, I was wondering, do I have it? And so with this, and then the fact that um, symptoms of COVID and their severity vary from person to person, uh, it leaves you pretty unsure if you have it or not. So you could even take an at-home test, and if you've taken an at-home test, you know one line means negative and two lines means positive. And so you could take an at-home test thinking, oh, I have a tickle in my throat, maybe I have COVID, and you see the one line meaning negative, but you could still have COVID hiding in your system. Like the question marks abound. It's so elusive. It's like COVID's the best spy agent ever. But when you do take a test and you see that you have two lines, reality sets in. It's the real deal. And you get that sinking feeling in your stomach. I actually have COVID. Like it actually, Emily and I, my wife and I, we were talking, we've been avoiding this for three years and now it's here. It was very weird for us. I know a lot of you have already had it. You're like, old news, Ben. But this was new news for us. And since when you get a positive test, you realize it's the real deal, uh, it, the, the fact that it's the real deal demands a response, right? You call out sick from work, you isolate, and you get better. And in John's Gospel... Where we're at, so we're in chapter 3, starting at verse 22. The section that we're in in John's Gospel, uh, for some, the jury is still out on Jesus. They're unsure. Is he the real deal or not? Is who Jesus claims to be and what he claims to bring, is it the real deal? Is he legit? And if he is, if he is the real deal... It demands a response, a belief and trust. So back in chapter 2, you'll remember, if you've you've been here with us through the Gospel of John, Pastor Phil, we saw the wedding in Cana, where the whole point is that Jesus is bringing this new messianic age of joy and blessing. And then after that, we saw that Jesus goes into the temple and starts flipping over tables, claiming that he is the new temple. He's the one through whom sinful humans can meet and know God. Last week, if you were here, Steve, Pastor Stephen, we, with Pastor Stephen in the beginning of chapter 3, we looked at Nicodemus. And Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus about the fact that he is the one who brings the Holy Spirit, the new birth, salvation. These are huge claims that Jesus is making. And in all of these stories, we see two things. One, we learn something about Jesus. John, is he wants us to see something about Jesus, who he claims to be, and what he is doing. 
But then two, what John is doing for us, the, the gospel writer, he is he's showing us that it's, this is really divisive. Certain people are responding in certain ways to Jesus. Some are accepting everything that he has to say. Some are completely rejecting it. And some, for some, the jury's still out. They don't really know. And we're going to see this again today in this text. John continues with this theme. This is what this whole section in John is about. Showing who Jesus is and that people are, the, the, people are responding in different ways. They're either accepting or rejecting who Jesus says he is, Jesus himself, who he says he is. And all of this plays into John's larger goal. At the end of John's gospel, um, and I'm pretty sure Stephen said this at the beginning of this series, chapter 20, verse 31, John makes clear, this is one of the few books in the Bible that actually makes clear, this is why this is written. It's actually really helpful, because you can then look at the whole book through this lens. John says, all these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let me read that one more time. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what is happening in this section, I'm just trying to set us up for success here in understanding what's going on in in these verses that we're reading. This is fitting into John's larger goal, that you would see Jesus, and that in seeing him and believing in him as the Christ, you would have life in his name. So the big idea this morning is that Jesus must be in the spotlight because he's the real deal son of God in whom you should believe. And so we're going to explore this part by part. So first we're going to look at the fact that Jesus must be in the spotlight. And this will, you'll get what I mean in a second. So we're starting in verse 22. So this is after this, so this is after Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Sometime after this conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John, so this is not John the Gospel writer. This is going to be, I just want to clear this up. John the Gospel writer, I will clarify that. This is John the Baptist. John was also baptizing near Anaon, near Salim, because water was plentiful there. And the people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. So if you remember in the beginning of John's gospel, John the Baptist was introduced to us right from the get-go. And in short, John the Baptist was a prophet. He was appointed by God to prepare the nation of Israel for the coming of the Messiah, of Jesus. And he had a ministry of baptizing people, calling them to repentance. And so throughout the whole, up until this point, John's purpose His God-given purpose has been made very clear. His purpose was to point people to Jesus. And here, Jesus has come on the scene. He's doing all this stuff, claiming all these things. People are saying yes and no to Jesus. They're accepting or rejecting him. And now, John the Gospel writer pans the camera and brings us back to this guy, John the Baptist, that we've forgotten about for a chapter and a half or two chapters. And we see that both Jesus and John the Baptist are both baptizing people in different places. So they both have ministries going on. 
So that's, that's the setup here. Now we get into verses 25 and 26. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples, this is John the Baptist, some of John's disciples, and a Jew over purification. And they came to John, this is John's disciples, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, talking about Jesus, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So first we see this thing, John the Baptist's disciples are having a discussion with a Jew over purification, that's Jewish purification rituals, ceremonial rituals. And so we're not, John the, the author here, John the gospel writer, does not really give us much information on what this discussion was about. Um, maybe they were looking at baptism and trying to figure out how does this compare with our ritual cleansing. Whatever this conversation was about, it seems to have made John the Baptist's disciples feel attacked or insecure about the ministry that they were involved in because now they come to John the Baptist, the head honcho, expressing that Jesus is stealing the show. John, what are you going to do? Jesus is more popular than you. He's going to put us out of business. Everybody's going to this Jesus guy. John, What? your star is waning, John. What are you going to do? We're not going to have any anything left to do. It's all about this Jesus guy now. What's up with this? How does John the Baptist respond? Verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. To use the most theologically complex term that I could ever use, John basically says, Duh! This is what I've been saying since the beginning. This was my whole purpose, was to highlight Jesus. This was my purpose. But more than this, in verse 27, he he gives a principle. God's the one who decides who gets what. Nobody can receive anything unless it's given to him by God. He looks to the sovereignty of who God is. And how he works. And, and so John basically says, listen, the fact that people are going to Jesus and not to me, that's God's will. And so this is why then in verse 28, he basically says, duh. He, he reiterates his role. This is the role that God has given me. And yet it's not just that John is content with the role that God has ordained for him. But he's also content with the role that God has given to Jesus. Like verse 27 goes both ways. A person can't receive anything unless it's given to him from heaven. Meaning that's pointing to John the Baptist. I can't. Whatever's happening in my ministry, whatever the role is that God's ordained for me, that's his prerogative, not mine. But the fact that people are also going to Jesus and that he's the popular one and that he's in the spotlight and that he's putting us out of business That's also God's prerogative. But even more than this, let's skip down to verse 30, and we're going to come back to verse 30 a little later, but John concludes how he responds to his own disciples with the words, he must increase, but I must decrease. 
And this word must, this is a divine must. Jesus must increase. He must be greater than John because that is God's plan. Jesus is to be exalted as the kingly Messiah Savior. He is the one who is going to have the name above every other name. That is God's will. It's his plan. And so John, looking at this whole scene, his disciples are all up in arms. He's putting us out of business. John, your star's waning. What's going to happen? And John's content. And contentment is something we all struggle with. We were actually talking about this in our, in our church prayer meeting this morning, which is at 9 a.m. every Sunday. You should consider coming. But we were talking about contentment. Um, contentment is something that we all struggle with. Do, do you guys agree with me? Yes? No? Yes? Yeah. This is, contentment is something that we all are faced with. Um, and while we could say a lot, I think specifically what we see in this text is the struggle of contentment with where God has placed us. Contentment in the roles that God has given us to play in his unfolding plan of salvation. I wish I could be more like this person. I wish I could serve in this ministry. I wish I wasn't so hindered by this job or this season of life. Or this situation. And yet we see in John the Baptist. That he found contentment and rest. He fully believed in God's sovereign will. Even if it meant that he wasn't going to be the rock star. That his disciples thought he should be. He is content. He is content with the sovereign will of God. Even if it's to his own detriment. Moreover, he recognizes, I think what he's recognizing in verse 27, is that discontentment is actually an affront on God himself. It is to say, implicitly, God's integrity and his will and his wisdom are just flat out wrong. Look at verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven a.k.a. from God. Disciples, John's disciples, you're, it's, it's like he's saying that you're, dis, you're discontent with what's happening. That's not an affront on me. You're just saying something about God. But it's not just that John is content with God's plans and the role that God has assigned to him. He takes it one step further. And we see in verses 28, 29, or sorry, 29 and 30, which we're going to read in a second, that what is a must, remember we said he must increase, that this is a must for God, this is God's plan. What is a must for God? Jesus increasing is also a must for John. John the Baptist is thoroughly, we're going to see here, he is thoroughly Christocentric, not egocentric. It is not all about, he is not all about himself. He is, this guy is all about Jesus. Verse 29 says, so John's just reiterated his role. Listen, I was sent before Jesus. My whole goal is to point to him. And he says, verse 29, 
the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John here gives a picture of a wedding. And there's three characters in this wedding. There's the bride, which are, this is the people going to Jesus. There's the groom, or the bridegroom, that's Jesus. And then there's the best man, or what it says here in our text, the friend. This is John the Baptist. He's the best man at the wedding. Now just the, so John is giving us this picture to highlight how ridiculous it would be for the focus to be on him as the best man at the wedding. I mean, just think about if the best man's, let, let's say there's a casual summer wedding, just suit and tie, not, no tuxes. And so the whole bridal party, they've, they, the, the groom has got them all their suits. But the best man decides, you know what, I'm going to show up in a tux. And I'm going to photobomb every picture. Like when the bride and groom kiss, I'm going to step in and... And he makes the whole ceremony, everything is just about him. That would be absolutely ridiculous. It is so ridiculous. The point of the best man is to serve and to point to the groom. And we're talking about this, not even talking about the fact that this is a beautiful picture. This is Jesus' wedding with his people. So, John gives this picture of, yeah, of course, of course Jesus is taking the spotlight. It's not about me. I am only the best man. And therefore, when we get to verse 30, it makes all the more sense. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's as if John is praying directly from the Lord's Prayer. May your kingdom come, your kingdom. May your will be done on earth, in my life, in my ministry, in everything that I am. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He must increase, but I must decrease. And really what we see here is that John's exaltation of Jesus is intimately connected with John's contentment. The both are inextricably related. You can't separate them. See, since God has ordained that ultimately it's all about Jesus, it's all about Jesus' name, it's all about Jesus' prestige, it's all about Jesus' honor and glory and fame, since God has ordained that it's all about Jesus, then we can be content with our roles. John can be content with his role. It's not about him. We can be content when our name and our glory and our fame aren't increasing. We can be content with the fact that Jesus is being lifted high because that's the goal. And looking at John's response here, I think the the encouragement and the exhortation for us today is towards Christocentric living. That we would be like John the Baptist, who was not only content with God's will and God's plans and God's purposes, but whose but whose primary ambition, 
his primary passion, his primary purpose in life was to magnify Jesus and point others to him. And the way that such Christocentric living manifests itself in our lives is in our personal life, in our thought life, with our spouses, in our workplace, even in the priorities that we place on our children. I have, um, I have three children. The oldest is five, so I've basically become a... I could run a master class on parenting. I've got it all figured out. Um, there's a lot of things that I want for my kids. And I think that there's a lot that we can put on our kids, if you have kids. But if, if the goal is he must increase and I must decrease... What priorities am I setting for my children? What are the priorities in my home? What are our priorities as a church? Are we content with the season that we're in as a church? Our church has been wanting, we've been renting here in this building. We're super blessed. Renting here for over 20 years, is that right? Yeah? We would love our own building. But are we content with the fact that we don't have one? But that Jesus is still being glorified. He's still being lifted high. Are we living as Christocentric citizens of this country? I mean, we could push this out into almost every area of our life. The exhortation to us today, from this part of this text is that we would be all about Jesus. His exaltation. His honor. And still more, notice at the end of verse 29, what John says. So he says, I'm I'm just the best man. I'm just the best man. And he's watching the groom and the bride meet. And he says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. It's full. My joy is full. For John, being all about Jesus is actually what brings him joy. This is actually what fills his heart up with joy and happiness. And this is so contrary to what we might be inclined to think. I need to focus on myself in order to be happy. Right? It's, it's like Disney theology. Be your own hero. Fulfill yourself. Be your real self. Focus on yourself and you'll really be happy. And I'm not talking about proper self-care. That's, that's one thing. We need to care for our bodies. Right? We need to care. But what I'm talking about is this idea that our happiness hinges on our personal fulfillment and self-focus. And wasn't this the lie of the serpent in the garden? Isn't this just the oldest lie around? Take the throne. God doesn't actually care about you. Fulfill your every waking desire, and then you'll be happy and wise. It's the oldest lie in the book. And the point is, is that not only is John content, not only is he Christocentric, but all of that leads and it frees him to find true joy 
in Christ. True joy is only found in knowing, worshiping, and magnifying Jesus Christ. And so looking at John the Baptist's exaltation and joy of Jesus, if we remember what I was saying at the beginning, that this whole section is talking about two things. It's revealing who Jesus is and then how people are responding to him. We see that this whole section actually fits into John's larger agenda. It's revealing something about Jesus. And we see somebody here, John the Baptist, responding correctly. He's responding correctly to Jesus. This is actually in contrast to Nicodemus from last week, to whom Jesus said, you're not believing. And we do know that Nicodemus believes in the end. But the jury was still out for him. And now we see John the Baptist responding. He's it. He must increase. But we also see that this also fits into John's overarching goal, that we, the readers, might believe in Jesus and have life in his name. See, John's joy about Jesus speaks to Jesus' validity as the Son of God and his unmeasurable beauty and worth. And so in light of this, John the author, not the Baptist, John the author, moves on now in the rest of our text, verses 31 through 36, and gives commentary on what we just read. And he get, to, to give the validity of who Jesus is as the Son of God. He's showing in multiple ways that Jesus is the real deal. So we just looked at the fact that Jesus must be in the spotlight, but it's also because Jesus is the real deal, Son of God. So verse 31. He who comes from above is above all, a.k.a. Jesus. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks an earthly way, a.k.a. John the Baptist. He who comes from heaven is above all. So the first thing, John here, like I said, he's just listing out things about Jesus, showing his validity. He's the real deal, guys. The first thing that we see here is that Jesus has heavenly credentials. John is in one sense comparing Jesus with John the Baptist, right? Jesus is from above and he's superior to, greater than John the Baptist who is from the earth. And if, So therefore, of course, John the Baptist was right in saying that Jesus must increase. Jesus is greater. He's superior. He's everything. He's divine. Verse 32. He, this is talking about the one from above, Jesus, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So not only does Jesus have heavenly credentials, we see that he speaks true words from God. Whereas John the Baptist speaks from a human perspective, from an earthly perspective, Jesus speaks as one who's from above and who knows firsthand what he's talking about. Just like it says, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. He's come from above. He's speaking from personal firsthand testimony. Everything that Jesus is proclaiming about himself, that he's the true temple, the place where sinners can meet with God. He is the Savior who brings the new birth, the Holy Spirit, Salvation. He brings true true joy, the new messianic age. All of those things, John can only speak about Jesus from an earthly perspective. Jesus, though, everything he's saying, it's firsthand. He knows what he's talking about. Everything that Jesus is saying about himself, 
He's not making it up. That's, that's what John, the gospel writer, is saying to us. But more than this, he actually says that he, he speaks the words of God. In verse 34, he speaks the words of God himself. So Jesus has heavenly credentials. He speaks true words from God. But now in verse 35, we see it says this, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. Jesus not only has heavenly credentials, not only speaks true words from God, but he also has the approval of God the Father. God the Father has set his love on the Son, and he's given everything into his hands. So in short, we just saw John the Baptist magnifying Jesus, exalting Jesus. He must increase. And now John the Gospel writer is looking back on this and giving us commentary. And he's saying, you know why John did that? Because Jesus is the real deal. Or in other words, here's how I wrote it down and summarized what John's saying, the gospel writer. Jesus is the real deal son of God who came from above to the earth to speak God's word with God's own stamp of approval. He's basically trying to lay out, say, do you believe this? Because basically if this is true, if what is happening here is true, if everything that Jesus is saying about himself is true, If there was an actual man who was God incarnate, who came to the world he created, spoke the truth of God, claiming that only through trusting in him you can be reconciled to God and have true everlasting life. If that's true, that demands a response. It demands a response. You can't remain neutral to the claims of Jesus. What are you going to do with this? And what John makes clear to us, the gospel writer, is that you should believe and trust in this Jesus, which takes us to the last part of our big idea. You should believe in Jesus. Jesus must be in the spotlight because he is the real deal son of God in whom you should believe. Notice in verses 32 and 33, John claims that there were a lot of people rejecting Jesus and his testimony, meaning everything that Jesus has been claiming about himself as the son of God and the savior of the world. But, in verse 33, those that did receive what Jesus claims, which are the words of God himself, those people affirm, or as it says here, they set their seal that God is truthful. And the point is, is that someone's response to Jesus shows whether or not they're on God's side. It shows whether or not they're on God's side. You reject Jesus, you reject what Jesus says about himself, you reject his message, you reject all that he claims to be, you're showing yourself to be against God himself. You're calling God a liar. You accept Jesus and his message, you show yourself to agree with God, to be on his side. But it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Not only does your response to Jesus dictate or show whether you're on God's side or not, someone's response to Jesus and his message also concerns life and death. It concerns life and death. You accept Jesus in his message, you have eternal life. 
you reject Jesus and his message, you will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on you. And I think John includes this for two reasons. Um, And this goes back to what I was saying at the beginning about John's overarching goal is that you would believe on Jesus and have life in his name. And it seems to me um, that John didn't write this just evangelistically, just for unbelievers. Um, But this is also, his whole gospel is also written to edify those who already believe. That you would be sure that he is the son of God and that you have life in his name. And so, this idea that you should believe in Jesus, I think it has two purposes here. One, it's to encourage and edify believers. We live in a world where, generally speaking, Jesus and his message are at best, at best, a nice add-on for you, but don't push it on me type of thing. It's a nice necklace that you wear, I just don't want to wear it. And at worst, Jesus and his message are dangerous and destructive. And just like in Jesus' day, as John's talking about here, there are a lot of people who reject him. But John here reminds us that if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, regardless of what others might say, regardless of what your own doubts might speak, you are on the right side. Do you guys see that here? You are claiming, God, I agree with you. You're siding with God. But even more than this, what John says is that not that you will have future, not that you have had past, not that you might have, but that you have presently eternal life. And John does this in his gospel. He talks about this, to use an actual theological term, eschatological, the end times, the the eternal life that we will experience one day. It's as if Jesus is bringing it into your life right now. It's this really awesome image. Notice he doesn't say you will have eternal life. He says that you have it right now. You presently have the eternal life that Jesus gives, which brings restoration and renewal. That is amazing. So, John writing this, it's, it's to encourage and edify believers, but also, it's to warn and call to faith those who don't believe. I know most of you here today, but if you are here today, and you do not believe in Jesus, or maybe you're here today, and you're, um, you're youth, and you've grown up coming to this church, And you just come because that's what mom and dad say to do. But you don't really believe in Jesus. What this passage is doing is clearly stating that if you do not believe in Jesus, you're not on God's side. You stand against him. And not only that, that the wrath of God remains on you because of your sin, because of the ways in which you do not honor God as God, because of the ways in which you call good what God calls evil. 
But this passage doesn't stop. So we said it edifies, but also warns. It doesn't just warn. It also gives hope, right, to the person that doesn't believe in Jesus. It doesn't leave you hopeless, if that's you. It also offers you life. It offers you life through believing in Jesus, through trusting in him alone for salvation from your sins, for the gift of eternal life, trusting that he is the only one who can reconcile you to God. In other words, this passage doesn't just warn you, it asks you, if you're not believing in Jesus, why aren't you? He is the real deal son of God in whom you should believe. So if that's you, please come talk to me after service if you're interested. Or if you're youth here and you're like, man, the only reason I come to church is because my mom and dad. Go talk to your mom and dad. If you're interested, if you're saying, yes, I don't want the wrath of God to remain on me. I want to believe in Jesus and have eternal life. Talk to someone. And so John here, he's, he's taken us through. He's taken us through this text to show us who Jesus is. And I think we can all agree that he's done a pretty good job at doing that, whether I did a good job or not. John, John does a pretty good job here at showing us who Jesus is. Jesus is the real deal son of God in whom we should believe. And in other words, who Jesus is, just like you get a COVID test, you see the, you're positive, it demands a response. When you see that Jesus is the real deal, and in an in, in infinitely more important way, it demands a response. And also because Jesus is the real deal, it's for this reason that we as believers, those who, as those who have responded to Jesus, that Jesus should also be the central driving force, the goal, the passion, the promotion of our lives. Or as we put it in our big idea, Jesus must be in the spotlight. Because he is the real deal, son of God, in whom you should believe. Amen? Lord, we thank you that you sent your son. We thank you that he's the real deal. Um, He is not a liar. You are not a liar. And we thank you for the life that we can have in him, that we do have if we've put our faith and trust in him. And we ask, Lord, that as we think on who Jesus is, that we would see his beauty and worth, We would see him as the valid son of God and that he would be central in our lives and our actions and our thoughts and our families and our church. Pray that in your name and for your glory. Amen.